we have gathered up a number of questions, and Dr. Borkman is going to get $5 for every one he gets right. <laughs> this is how we do our honorarium here. <laughs> no, no, we are so well taught, and I am so excited and thankful for all of the sessions that we've had, and I'm thankful for this time because now we get to ask any of the questions that we have that are niggling in our minds that we still need clarity on or that we want to ask. And of course, I'm sure Dr. Borgman would take questions outside of the topic of covenant theology, if you have other questions for him. But maybe we'll start with the ones that we have on covenant theology. And Dr. Borgman said that he's happy to receive prompty ones from the floor as well. So it probably depends on how much time we have, that, that, that uh, how much we have to go. And I do think we have a campfire planned. So there'll be more opportunities to ask questions then, and sometimes the conversation works better in front of the campfire anyway. Yeah. Anyways, so we'll get started. More dangerous, though. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, they Throw burned right in the fire. They burned heretics. Yes. Covenant of works. Jesus fulfilled the covenant. So does the covenant of works still apply to Christians now? There's, there's a, a distinction that I would make, and that is that um, after the time of Adam, uh, human beings are, are not formally in a covenant of works with God, simply because there's a sense in which fallen sinners can't enter into a covenant of works. But I would say that all of humanity is still under a fundamental obligation to render perfect and perpetual obedience to God, and they are also under the curse of that uh, broken covenant. So there's a sense where the obligation remains, the penalty remains, but in a sense the, the, the formality of the covenant relationship was unique to Adam. Dr. Borba, you... Just uh, call me Brian, Brian. please. You're freaking me out. <laughs> Isn't that correct? No, I, I already did a, a demon. Okay, then. <laughs> Dr. Brinkerhoff, you're not going to work on a PhD? I know, I was going to call him Dr. Jocko. Yeah. So my kids, they, they had a confusing time knowing that my dad's a medical doctor and I also have a doctor, but then they realized, oh, daddy's a doctor, but he doesn't help anyone. <laughs> That's how they clarified things. So you talked about, Brian, you talked about the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. There's one covenant we haven't had a chance to talk about, maybe won't, won't get to, and that's the Davidic Covenant. So can you explain the elements of works and also grace in the Davidic Covenant? Yeah, so I, I would say that not, not all of the covenants have necessarily the same elements in them. And so... The Davidic covenant is, is in a, a real sense, um, a promise made to David. There is, there is an element of, uh, if your sons walk in, in my ways, right? Well, they're going to fail at that. Uh, Solomon, for instance, fails uh, at it. And then, of course, the whole uh, history of the southern kingdom which God preserves for as long as He did for David's sake, right? But they all fail. But the thing is, is that in a real sense, 
what should have been the abdication of any claim to, uh, to a throne, Jesus comes and actually is the greater son of David. And so, in a sense, um, I guess that there are parallels, but the, the promise really is that David would have a seed that would be seated on his throne forever, and that, of course, is fulfilled in Christ. So, it, of course, it's worth looking at, you know, but we only have so much time. There's a second question from the same asker. Do all the civil laws, I, I, I presume this means the, the civil laws um, in the Mosaic Covenant, do they all have a moral imperative or a moral basis behind them? <laughs> I want to say yes, but I also want to qualify it by saying I'm not necessarily sure how. Okay. So, there are certain things that are relatively clear to us. So, for instance, uh, one of the civil laws would be um, to basically build a guardrail around your roof, right? So, that was part of the civil law. And that, of course, was designed to help keep people safe. <clears throat> there were laws of restitution. So, if you had an ox that kept getting out and that and you were warned, and that ox ended up goring one of mine, you'd have to make restitution to me. So I would say that there are principles that we can extract from those civil laws um, that, that are for uh, our wisdom, for direction. Um, obviously, there's a group of, of people that have been very vocal for a good 40 years that believe that the civil laws... Um, should be, along with the sanctions and penalties, should be imposed on society. They're typically called theonomists or reconstructionists. And, um, you know, our confession, the confession of faith, is actually very clear that those laws, because they, were, uh, they pertain to Israel as a nation, those laws are no longer binding in, in, in the sense of being imposed on us as a society. But there are moral principles, so I want to make sure that I take care of my home in such a way that I'm not putting people in danger or, you know, things like that. So, I, I think that there's a challenge for us on how to apply these things, and it's not always easy, right? Anybody that thinks application of Old Testament law is easy um, hasn't read Old Testament law. The example that you gave about putting a parapet Mm -hmm. around the house. John, you used that example when you preached, I think, on the first commandment, or maybe it was the introduction that you gave to the commandments. That's an application of the duty associated with the command, thou shalt not murder. Mm -hmm. The positive duty of not murdering is providing a safe environment so that life is protected. Yes. Right. Good. Since infant baptism is unbiblical, what's your opinion on baby dedications, and also on circumcision of Christian uh, of children of Christian parents who uh, hold to Baptist covenant theology. <laughs> okay, um, we're going there. Yeah, we're we've gone there. Uh, all right, so um, so a physical circumcision has no 
spiritual significance now. Okay? There's, there's no value to it. If parents choose to have their male children circumcised, I imagine that there are various reasons for that. Okay? Um, but if they're religious reasons, then they're misguided. Alright? Um, I'm sure that my son would be happy for you to know that we actually had him circumcised when he was... <laughs> and uh, they asked me if I wanted to be in there. I, I was sure, and then I about passed out. I wanted to just... It was, it was awful. But uh, anyway, so... Yeah, so circumcision is irrelevant now, and Paul makes that really clear as far as the religious significance of it. Um, oh, go ahead. Baby dedication. Yeah, I thought you were going to bring that back up again. <laughs> Just don't do it in the rain, otherwise they'll be Presbyterians. <laughs> so here's, here's, my, here's my dilemma on, on baby dedication is that in terms of what we would call the regulative principle of worship, we have no, we have no fundamental uh, precept or uh, implicit or explicit that would lead us to this practice, all right? So on, on the one hand, I've always had a, a reservation about it, all right? But then pastorally, there is oftentimes a sense where parents want to do something to express their commitment to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And they want to, as it were, make some sort of public commitment that this is what they're doing. And so I feel a tension between um, my conviction on, on what constitutes an act of worship. So the way that I've reconciled this in my mind, and this... You know, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily the right way. I'm just telling you how we've wrestled with it. Um, we do not view um, baby dedication as an act of worship. And the only time that we do it is when I have a ton of parents clamoring to do it. And so as a result, it's kind of phased out over the years. I think we do one maybe every three or four years. Then we have like 60 kids up there and the platform is about to collapse. But um, but anyway, so I, I feel that there's a, there's a tension there. And I don't think, I don't think that the desire to do something public is like a substitute for baptism. Right? That, and that's, that's always kind of the charge is that uh, well, since you don't baptize, you feel like you've got to do something, so it's just a dry infant baptism. And I don't think that that's the case. I think people read, you know, about Hannah dedicating Samuel to the Lord and things like that, and they want to do something. And so to me, it's one of those gray areas that I, that I will concede on um, when, when requested. I think most people here will know what the regulative principle is, but could you give the, the five-minute overview of what that means? Yeah, so regulative principle of worship is, um, really it sort of comes from the reformed strain of, or stream of the Reformation, and the idea is, is that, is that our worship, the elements of our worship, 
need to have biblical warrant. Okay? So we don't get to just make up what we want to do. So Scripture regulates our worship. So we have to have a biblical principle that is either explicit and explicit command. So for instance, preach the word or I want the men to pray or things like that. So those would be the elements of worship and we have to have scriptural warrant for the elements of worship. So you don't have a scriptural warrant, for instance, to do a skit instead of a sermon. You don't have scriptural warrant to have liturgical dance instead of, you know, you have a scriptural warrant to confess your faith together, to pray, to sing, to preach, to fellowship, right? Those things. And so, uh, but there'd also be a distinction between the elements of worship and then the circumstances of worship. So the Bible doesn't tell you you shall use a microphone, okay? But a microphone is not an element of worship, it's a circumstance. It actually aids in, in the worship itself. So whether it's pews or whether it's microphones or whatever, it may, air conditioning, right? Um, those are all things that are circumstances that, uh, that we have liberty to do to assist us in the elements of worship. This is an opinion question. Do you think musical instruments are a circumstance? Yes. That's yes. the answer. Thank you. Because they help aid worship, right? Yes. Yeah. Many of us have close friends who will hold to different views. Maybe they might be paedo-baptist, dispensational, and so forth. Presumably, Bible-believing Christians, in the context of the question, how should we maintain loving friendships with these, and I'll put in these Christians, who disagree? I think that there's a good way to be a good friend to other Christians who disagree with you, and I think that there's a negative way to be, let's say, an unhelpful friend to Christians. I, I really do believe that, um, that you can hold theological convictions with earnestness and passion, and, and yet have genuine love and fellowship with other Christians who disagree. So I have many friends, for instance, that are Presbyterian, and I have, I have more in common with them than I would have with, let's say, the Southern Baptist pastor in my community who is, uh, who is a thoroughgoing Arminian, right? So, so I want to recognize the, the fact that there really is unity in the body of Christ, and, and so there are going to be differences I really think like on the baptism issue, a really good model of, of how to get along is, uh, is, is exhibited with Mark Dever and, and Ligon Duncan. They've done podcasts where they've discussed baptism. They both actually radically disagree with each other and in fact have the, the guts to say to each other, I think that you're sinning by baptizing your children and I think that you're sinning by not baptizing your children, right? But it's not sinning like going out and committing murder. It is a sin of ignorance, and therefore there, there, there is to be charity. And I would, I would also say that 
you have to remember that most of us actually came to Christ through somebody that was a dispensationalist. My dad came to know Christ by listening to J. Vernon McGee on the radio. McGee, okay, all right, praise the Lord, another Bible bus passenger. Um, and so I think that we, we need to be committed to um, having good dialogue when we can have it. Um, but our job is not, our job is not to proselytize dispensationalists to make them covenantal or uh, people that are confused on the doctrines of grace to proselytize them to become Calvinists. Okay? I look forward to conversations, but I'm not going to treat somebody as if they're outside the faith until they cross every T and dot every I just like me. And so I think that we honor the Lord actually by being charitable to other people that differ from us. In what way does Baptist Covenant theology frame or uh, provide guidance to one's view of eschatology? I don't know exactly. Um, and the reason I say I don't know exactly is because so historically you've had you've had all three millennial positions represented by people from all different points on the spectrum. So there's not just in, in a sense just sort of one uniform uh, eschatological position of those that hold to uh, Baptist covenant theology or even paedo-Baptist covenant theology. Uh, I would say that if I, if I were to, to guess, I would say that most who embrace covenant theology are either uh, amill or pre-mill, that there have been a fair number of, or, or amill or post-mill, that there have been a fair number of historic pre-mill too. So I don't think that you can just kind of identify necessarily the trajectory of a person's eschatology on the basis of their covenant theology. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Dispensationalism, of course, is different. Yeah, yeah. Dispensationalism is different. So. Thank you. So Acts 15, when the uh, apostles in the Jerusalem Council made a letter to the Gentile churches, had a very limited list of commandments or instructions for the Gentile believers. How does this fit with the moral law that we know is revealed to us in the Old Testament? The, the Jerusalem Council has to be kept in its, uh, in its historical context. And that historical context was that the Judaizers were following Paul and Barnabas around telling Gentile converts, basically, you need to become Jews in order to become saved. We as, I mean, I'm assuming that most of us in this room are Gentiles. There is, there is very little understanding that we have of that fundamental rift between Jew and Gentile in the first century. And so this was creating an, actually a tremendous problem uh, for Jewish people having Gentiles come in. The Jerusalem Council, in a sense, is, is, is trying to 
navigate a, a, a middle road. So on the one hand, um, you have the uh, very clear reflection of the moral law where they're to abstain from, from fornication. Um, but then you also have uh, that they're not to eat uh, animals with blood, which would be, which actually would not be a part of the moral law. And so what the Jerusalem Council is trying to do is they're trying to mitigate the Gentile offense among the Jewish people that uh, Jews and Gentiles are going to have to get along in the church together. And so in some ways the Jerusalem Council, I don't take the Jerusalem Council to be a paradigm for church government. And I don't see the, uh, the decree of the Jerusalem Council as, as somehow encapsulating eternal principles. I mean, it was a very much sort of an ad hoc situational uh, issue that they were dealing with. Thank you. Next question. How should we understand Romans 11 in light of uh, covenant theology? So, of course, Romans 11 deals with um, you know, Paul starts out in that text, God has not uh, abandoned his, his people whom he foreknew, has he? May it never be. And then the, uh, the whole of Romans 11 is basically talking about uh, the role of, of, of Israel. So there's been, uh, among people that hold the covenant theology, there's been three different perspectives on Romans 11. And the first, and Calvin is representative, and that is that Israel just simply ends up being um, uh, the way that Paul's describing the elect of God, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. So Israel is the true Israel, and in this way, all of Israel is going to be saved. So it's just a code for the elect, in a sense. There's, there's another view that was more common among Dutch uh, scholars that basically says that what Paul does in Romans 11 is he asks if God has forsaken his people. He answers no and then says basically the proof is, is that I'm, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, right? And then he turns around and he makes an argument from the remnant, okay? So the idea is, in this view, is basically this. God has always had a remnant of Jewish people among his elect, and he will always have a remnant of Jewish people among his elect. That's how God saves his people throughout all of redemptive history. And then the third view is, that was held by many Puritans, held by John Murray, and actually held by many Reformed people, and that is that what Romans 11 is promising is a future salvation of ethnic Israel at the end of the age, that there would be actually a mass conversion of Jewish people to Jesus at the end of the age. And, um, and so this view, by the way, I have to distinguish, this view is not um, the idea that, that the kingdom is restored to the Jews it is the idea, though, that Jews are restored to the kingdom. Okay? So this, this particular view, held by many of the Puritans, for instance, looked for a mass conversion of Jewish people to Jesus at the end of the age. This is what 
this is what motivates um, Robert Murray McShane, for instance, to go to what at that time was called Palestine to evangelize the Jews that lived in Palestine in the 1840s. Because the idea was, is at the end of the age, this is what God was going to do. And um, I used to hold the, the view, the remnant view, but I've, I've changed my mind, and I do think that, um, that Romans 11 uh, is saying that God is going to do something among the Jewish people before the end of the age. Now, I'm not willing to die for that view, um, but I, I think that that's... I think that's a, a tenable point. <coughs> Maybe, could you provide some historical context? The time, and I understand some of the Puritans were also quite evangelical towards the Jews as well. Was there a, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism in the culture at that time? Well, I mean, I think that you could probably argue that there's always been uh, an undercurrent of anti-Semitism. And... There, there most certainly was an undercurrent of anti-Semitism uh, in medieval Roman Catholicism. And uh, unfortunately, um, for instance, when Luther, when the Reformation starts, Luther actually believes that there's going to be a mass conversion of Jewish people because the Jews are going to see that the faith that they're preaching is different than the oppressive anti-Semitic faith that had been preached by medieval Romanists. And, of course, that doesn't happen. And uh, Luther ends up saying some very uh, sad and unfortunate uh, things about Jewish people at the end of his, of his life. Um, but throughout, uh, you know, basically throughout European history, there had always been um, sort of a, an undercurrent of, of anti-Semitism. Um, I don't know that the emphasis on Jewish evangelism was a reaction to that as much as it was a genuine conviction that, that prophetically this is what God was going to do. And, and was that zeal for evangelizing the Jews, was it just a universal zeal for evangelizing everybody or was there a specific focus based on their eschatological comprehension? Yeah, so... Uh, not all, but many of them would have held to the idea that um, that the kingdom of Jesus is is advancing in this world, and that it was moving towards a golden age. So these they would basically have been more post millennial, and the idea was is that um, that what God was going to do to sort of usher in the millennium would be uh, revivals and awakenings and Part of that was revival among the Jewish people. So they saw that as a, as a particular piece of their eschatological vision, all right? And so it wasn't just uh, evangelism of the world. That was part of it. So Jonathan Edwards, for instance, um, believed that the awakening that he was seeing was actually a precursor to, to this golden age. So Edwards had... first great awakening. Yes, yes, yeah. So I, I say that it had a, um, a peculiar piece in a certain eschatological framework. Here's a question. How can I be sure that I'm included in the covenant of grace? That, now that's, that's, that's a very, very practical question, right? Um... So many of our forefathers who uh, 
spoke uh, evangelistically. For instance, uh, one of the great Scottish theologians, Robert Rollick, writes a lengthy treatise on effectual calling. And what that treatise is actually about is the covenant of grace. Uh, because they couldn't separate the an individual salvation from a covenantal perspective, right? Um, William Guthrie's The Christian's Great Interest is, is about covenant theology, but it's about personal salvation. So these things are, so the question is, to me, right on target. So how do you know that you are in the covenant of grace? And I would say that there is a, there is a really, really basic answer. And that is to, to say, if I have put my faith and trust in, in the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, if I'm trusting Jesus alone as my Savior and my salvation, then I should have the assurance that I am a member of the covenant of grace. Amen. Yeah, very good. How do you see this understanding? I think that's a great question. How do you see this understanding of my salvation as being a part of God's greater work and not just an individual thing? How do you see that relating to our own sanctification, growth as Christians, life in the body, and so forth? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you could approach that. I'll just take one, and that is when I understand that when God saves me, He brings me into a covenant relationship with Him, that also means that He brings me into a covenant relationship with those who are already in Christ. And so salvation, although, it, although God saves people one at a time, salvation is never individualistic. Salvation is always in a sense a corporate, has a corporate dynamic to it. So when God saves me, I'm not only united to Christ, I'm united to Christ's people because of the covenant of grace. And so my, uh, you know, my heartbeat should be like, you know, Ruth to Naomi, you know, your God is my God, your people are my people, where you go, I will go. And there should be a sense of, because what covenant does is, is covenant emphasizes, in a sense, the corporate nature of what God is doing ultimately, right? I will be your God, you will be my people. And so I would say that there are, uh, massive implications for the way that we understand what it means to be a part of the church. Yeah. Thank you. How does the convenience, but I think that the, the person meant to write covenant, how, how does the covenant of works apply to a Christian's sanctification? I prefer to answer how does the convenience of works apply. <laughs> Maybe that's the real question. I, I, yeah, maybe. Um, so the covenant of works, how does, it, how does that help or assist my sanctification? Yep. <laughs> so I would say first, my heart should be filled with gratitude to Jesus who fulfilled that covenant for me and paid the penalty for all of my sins. He was my substitutionary curse bearer. So the covenant of works drives me to that place of humility and gratitude. And in a sense, the covenant of works should be a reminder to me that my own righteousness is never good enough. 
uh, no matter how much I grow, on my, on my best day, I need the grace of God just as much as I do on my worst day. And so the covenant of works keeps me humble, keeps me dependent, and, um, and, and yet it has no claim on me because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in light of Baptist covenant perspective as we're learning in this camp, is Calvin's three uses of the law still valid? Could you maybe describe those and then explain why or why not? Sure. So, Calvin, um, by the way, Calvin didn't invent this, but he probably expressed it better than anybody else. And that is that the law has three uses. By the way, Luther believed the same thing, um, even though he didn't act like it. Um, that is, first of all, there was a, 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 a civil use of the law. And that was basically to restrain uh, civil or social evil, right? And so that was, um, uh, anytime you have a law that says, for instance, uh, murder is illegal, that's, that's restraint. And then there was what would, you could call it different things, but in a sense sort of the condemning use of the law which brings the conviction of, of sin to me. Uh, it's, it's the law showing me my sin. So there's a sense where the law condemns me. And I realize that I can't earn my own salvation. And so it's, it's in a sense that pedagogical use that drives me to Christ, right? And uh, Calvin, and I, I'm not always sure that I like the, the imagery, but um, Calvin talks about the law being a whip to, uh, to beat dumb donkeys, to get them moving, right? And so, I'm sure that, the, you know, maybe I don't like that because I don't like being called a dumb donkey, but um, it's probably more true than I would like to admit. And then the third use of the law is basically a standard for Christian conduct. And um, and so so I would, I would argue that... Um, that those three uses are, are, are still relevant and applicable, right? And, and the reason I think that the civil use is, I'm not saying the same thing as in uh, applying all of the civil laws, all right? But in a sense, God's, God's law is what undergirds all human law. Okay? And, and, and in that sense, um, I think that the civil use is still applicable, but I would I would be uh, I would be seriously committed to the third use of the law. Okay, so it's a rule for Christian character. Yes, yes. How to please God? Maybe a follow-up to that question would be: Would you say then that we could use the existence of human laws in every society as an evidence of? Uh, moral law on the heart of man? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some people would appeal to the idea of natural law, and that's fine, uh, but it still ends up being the same thing, right? Okay, there's a, a phrase that sometimes we hear about in Christian circles. New covenant, quote-unquote, new covenant theology. Can you highlight maybe some distinctions between classic covenant theology, baptistic covenant theology, and quote-unquote, new covenant theology? Um, 
I might not be the most um, charitable person to address New Covenant theology. Um, well, we invited you. Oh, okay. <laughs> you could have invited somebody else. Um, so New Covenant theology is, is first of all relatively new. Um, and these would be my observations on New Covenant theology, all right? First, I would say that New Covenant theology is more of an internet phenomenon than actually the development of the theological system. Okay? So in other words, the, the leaders of New Covenant theology would even themselves basically say, we don't have a comprehensive system you know, let's, even like dispensationalism or covenant theology, we don't have a comprehensive system. Basically, covenant, uh, new covenant theology, um, it made uh, its splash by guys like John Zenz and John Riesinger. And, um, and, and, and I'm not, these are, are good men. I'm not saying that they're, that they're bad people. Uh, Fred Zaspel and others, Tom Wells. And, and, but it was, it was primarily um, articles on the internet and stuff. The New Covenant Theology books probably weren't really published, except maybe a few by John Riesinger here and there. So I think it's an internet phenomenon. But my biggest problem is that it seems to me to be driven by, um, by a denial of the fourth commandment. So in other words, New Covenant Theology emerges among Reformed Baptists that became anti-Sabbatarian, all right? And so the, the distinction, so New Covenant theology does have some, some common distinctions, and, and one would be a denial of the, of the three uh, tripartite uh, division of the law, so that all of the law is just a unified whole, therefore all of the law is no longer applicable to the Christian. So in that sense, it's theologically antinomian, right? But what drives that was, especially in the early days, were guys that were um, denying what the confession said uh, about uh, observance of the Lord's Day. So um, th there's a lot of contention in this. Um, you know, I have friends that, that hold to New Covenant theology, or, although some of them are converting over to progressive covenantalism because it has better uh, academic credentials, I think. But, um, but yeah, I, I, think that it, I think that it's a reactionary movement by and large. Can you explain why Baptist covenant theology is sometimes called 1689 federalism? I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> Basically, when, um, when Baptists started embracing Reformed theology back, and I'm talking about recent, in recent years, um, when they started embracing Reformed theology back in the 60s, a lot of these guys basically just sort of embraced classic covenant theology, but then put a, a, a twist on baptism itself. So basically what you had was a um, sort of a Baptist classic covenant theology 
minus baptism and nature of the church, right? Um, when the guys that wrote the confession, Nehemiah Cox, Benjamin Keach, and these guys, when their writings started getting rediscovered, um, then there started to be sort of a, a reawakening to the theological, really the theological acumen of these guys that were, they were brilliant in many ways. So people started reading the confession more carefully. And although I think the confession is, is, is open a little bit to different perspectives, there was a, a certain form of covenant theology, which is roughly what I presented this weekend, that was different than Baptistic classic covenant theology. So the reason it gets the, the title 1689 Federalism is because 1689 is a reference to the Confession of Faith. Federalism is, is another name for covenant theology. So basically it's saying that there's a, there's a distinct 1689 version of federal theology. I was wondering. Can you explain why believing Genesis to be literal history is so essential for this understanding of Baptist covenant theology? Well, I, I would say that believing Genesis is literal history is just important for being a Christian. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Um, I mean, quite honestly, um, to me, once you start denying the historicity of, of either Adam or the fall, um, then you've got way bigger problems than covenant theology. But there, there, is, a, there is a fundamental connection, and that is um, Adam and Christ stand together or fall together. You cannot read Romans 5, 12 to 21, and come away thinking that whether Adam existed historically or not is, uh, is an irrelevant point any more than whether Jesus really existed is a relevant point, right? Because you have, you have one man, right? This is, this is the whole point, is you have one man who is the federal head of the human race, and then you have the last Adam who is the federal head of his elect. If you, if you deny a historical Adam, you have to deny a literal fall. You have to, you have to deny... Uh, a historical entrance of sin and death into this world, and and you're in, you end up undermining absolutely everything that we believe um, about federalism, but also just, I mean about um, about the notions of sin and um, solidarity and Adam and so forth. So um, to me, it's a terrible uh, a, a terrible uh, intrusion of unbelief that goes under the banner of scholarship. We've exhausted the questions that were written down. Brother, how much time do we have? Oh, it's 8 o'clock now. 8 o'clock now. Do we want to take any questions or are we done? Okay. Any burning ones? I don't want to leave with a burning question. Now. Yeah, I don't want to leave with a burning question you just desperately need to ask. Brother, Ian? What's your favorite thing about Karen? <laughs> I can answer on his behalf. <laughs> What's my favorite thing about Canada? So you have to understand that that I am 
overjoyed to be an American. Okay? And I am, I am thankful to God that I was born in America. Uh, my birthday is July 1st. Is that Canada Day? Yes. Okay. I guess my favorite thing about Canada is Canada Day, which falls on my birthday. No. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. Um, here, here's, here's the wonderful thing is that you meet God's people all over the place and you have a kindred spirit with them. And and so coming here and being with you guys, and of course I've met your, your dear pastor on a few other occasions at, at fire meetings. Um, I think, to be honest with you, my favorite thing about Canada now most certainly is Providence Baptist Church and, uh, and the Tuckers. And all of you. And it's been, I mean, it's just been a great joy. And the fact that our hearts are knit together in Christ. And the fact that, uh, that we as the church may be facing some very challenging times in the years ahead. Uh, just is a reminder to us of the importance of praying for each other. Because we have the same faith, the same Lord. And, and so we're, we're all in this together, whether you're up in the Great North or whatever you call it up here, and, uh, or if you're, if you're in the, uh, the great land of the United States of America. <laughs> With that, maybe I'll, I'll ask you to pray for us. Sure. Thank you. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time that you've given us, and Thank you for this camp and the time where families can just get away and enjoy each other and enjoy your word and fellowship around Christ. And Father, we do thank you for, for our great mediator, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have forgiveness through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that we've been clothed in his righteousness. Father, we thank you for the songs of worship and praise that we've been able to sing together. And Father, I thank you for, uh, for this church body, for Providence Baptist Church. Lord, I thank you so much for John and Jane and their, their service to this church community. And Father, we pray that as we move ahead, that you would continue to give us an earnestness and a zeal to serve you with all of our might. Father, we pray that in the, in the years ahead, that you would remind us that we bow the knee to no one other than King Jesus. And we pray that you would keep us faithful no matter what it cost. And so, Father, we commit the, the remainder of this evening to you. And we pray that you would be glorified in every conversation. In Jesus' name, amen.